What's going on, everybody? You're listening to Sane Show, show about nothing and everything. I'm your host, Cliff, and today I have another special guest joining us. We go way, 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 way back. <laughs> uh, she's a licensed educator in North Carolina. She has a BA in early childhood development. She recently got her master's in urban education and graduate certificate in anti-racism and urban education. Kimberly Perez, how are you doing, Kim? Glad to be here. How are you? Great. I'm super excited to have you on the show. I know this is something we've been talking about for a while now, so I'm so glad you reached out to me and that we're finally able to make this happen. It's a long time coming, but I think right now is the perfect time. Yes, <laughs> indeed, indeed. So really quick, before I take and introduce the topics, I want to take a moment to shout out all the listeners in all 60 plus countries. Thank you guys. Love you guys. Thank you for continuing to like, share, and subscribe to Sane Show. And if you're listening and you don't already follow us, be sure to check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Sane underscore show. That's Sane, S-A-N-E underscore show. And you can find us on Facebook, Sane Show. Again, on Facebook, that's Sane Show. So today we're going to do things a little bit differently. We're going to have, we have three topics um, in the third one in place of the interview that we normally do. We have three topics. So first one is go we're going to talk about uh, schools and real estate. Then we're going to touch on modern day seg segregation. And then we're going to have a conversation about restorative justice and all of this being based on the work that you've done during your master's program. So Let's go ahead and hop right into it with our first topic, schools and real estate. So you really opened my eyes with this one. It, it's never occurred to me how both go hand in hand, you know, especially you know, me wanting to be a home buyer at some point in their future and looking around on the different websites and looking at real estate. And one of the things you see on there are the school grades. And I never really put much thought to that until talking to you. And I just so happened yesterday afternoon to uh, spend part of my afternoon watching a video, CNBC and Economics Explained, about the current real estate market, which I found to be very insightful as well. And obviously, some of us are aware of you know the inner workings of the school system, mainly concerning lower performing schools that are in low income communities, who are the main ones being affected by gentrification and obviously the, with the real estate market being the way it is and all those different things going on. And, you know, I just want to turn it over to you for you to offer your insight and give the listeners a little bit more insight into that as it pertains to the work that you've done. Yes. While I was doing this research myself, I, I honestly was in shock finding out a lot of very juicy, detailed information while looking through studies. Most people won't think about the correlation that exists between schools and real estate. That's something that we don't really think about. But if you notice, you know, when you go on like Redfin or any other real estate website, you see school grades. See, they list the schools that are nearby and sometimes you get to see their grades. This is for a reason, apparently. So studies have shown that real estate agents tend to make profit when a nearby neighborhood public school receives a failing grade. And it can be disturbing at times because you, what you're seeing is that these are usually underfunded schools. And these are underfunded schools that are serving black and brown students. They're receiving a failing grade. And as they receive that failing grade, it kind of 
opens the doors for gentrification. So what happens is kind of like the property value in that area just starts to go down. And so developers or people that are able to pay above asking price sometimes, they will go in and they will buy out within areas of the failing grade that the school receives. Once that happens, there's like studies have shown that whenever a school receives a failing grade, the family income in the area will go up. It's because people of higher income start to move in because those that live in that area are being pushed out either because they can't afford it anymore or because their leases just won't be renewed. Landlords and other people who own property in the area see it, I guess, as an opportunity for making money. And it just really goes to show how education and schools in the U.S. don't really exist in a vacuum. You know, they don't exist in a bubble apart from everything else that goes on in this country. That makes sense. As far as how how you've explained it, I'm even thinking about, I don't want to spill over into our next topic because this very much relates to what we're going to talk about next, but I'm just thinking about too how they are, even with some of the schools here locally, how they're building new facilities or relocating an existing school into a nearby area but we see what we see what's happening and then two I'm thinking about what that does to the community that that school is already in you see what I'm getting at yeah and one of my core beliefs as an educator is that people should not have to leave their community to receive good education along with everything else that's needed, including healthcare and access to information through like libraries, good access to food and things like that. But with segregation and sadly the role that schools play in segregation, which is due to funding, we see that people are having to travel, specifically black and brown people are having to travel further and further to be able to access any kind of education. You know, these people are being removed from their communities due to the real estate market and the relationship that it has with schools. I mean, and and you would think this is, if people are aware of this, then something has to be done. But looking back, and I did some research in it, like in the school system where I, where I work, back in 1999, they allowed the school system to continue with, with, with what they were doing. They were let off the hook by district courts. They were told that they weren't responsible for looking into factors that were causing segregation within its system. After No Child Left Behind came into play in 2002, the ability for school choice allowed for most school, mo- most school systems to become even more racially and economically segregated. So what we're seeing is even though it's happening already like on a local level, there's like federal backing of what, you know, of what is happening to these communities. Wow. Yeah, that that is sad. It really is. And, you know, even again, just going back to real estate, because one of one of the things they talked about, too, with the current market is, you know, obviously the, the people being hit the hardest are those who who cannot afford to play in the market, mm-hmm. who are already in low income areas, who can only afford to, if they relocate, go into another low income area and we're seeing again you know gentrification what's happening with these lower income areas these homes are being bought they're being flipped and i just recall going through an area and there being 
Section 8 housing on one side of the street and there being a nice two, two almost three-story luxury home right literally across the street. You could walk across the street. And I know there's a there's like a pool on the deck in the back, and it's 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 absurd. It's absurd yeah. that those things are happening. And even if those people who don't want to relocate but live in these communities, again, they cannot even afford to stay where they are because of the property value is being driven up by the yeah. people coming in and and building these. Like, and again, I'm all for building nice home, you know, coming in, being able to flip a home, but doing some of these really absurd things that has a dramatic effect on the property value, you have to, like, those things are not, obviously, are just being overlooked, right? And we're, we're, we're pushing people out and, and, and people not having a place to go. So, yeah, just one of the things that I've noticed in the, in the little bit of research that I've done and the things that I, again, that I see with my own eyes. Yes. And even, and I wanted to be able to also bring research that is more up to date. So like in 2019, a study found that when charter schools are introduced into a district, the socioeconomic segregation in the area increases by about 10%. A lot of it also is because like when they, when they interviewed the parents, they found that White parents are less likely to enroll their children in schools with high Black populations, even if the school matches the academic achievement of their preferred school in white areas. So it's it's almost as if it's sadly generational, and it continues to happen. And for, you know, we've seen instances in the U.S. where schools have used public funding to give scholarships to white students so that they won't have to go to a non-segregated school. And we see, again, public money being used to continue on with segregation and what some coin as white flight. And it's very, it's very sad to see because we like to think in the U.S. that a lot of people like to think that this is a post-racial society, and it's not. And when you start to really dig, you start to find the different ways that it affects everything from the curriculum that you see in your child's school to the housing market to food deserts and everything else. And it all really ties in together. There's no there's nothing that exists on its own within our society. I think it's quite devastating to see because you don't really think about the role that you play when you go in as a teacher. They don't, they don't really like to teach you about how funding works and how funding's usually not pretty fair and how you can have a school down the road be given everything and more that they can ask for while your students are struggling and you're just trying to make sure that they're having at least three meals a day, that kind of stuff. So when you look at from when you look at it from like the issues that you see within the classroom to like the broader picture of how these struggling schools are then used to like push a market that then push these struggling families out of their homes it's sad it's honestly very devastating to see all right 
we're back. Now we're going to have a conversation about modern day segregation. And, you know, we were kind of leading over into that in our previous segment. <laughs> I uh, actually a few days ago, I was uh, with some family and, you know, talking to my grandmother and a family friend who's an attorney. You know, he was asking me about the community and we touched on, you know, the changing demographic and, you know, because we're noticing how the community is changing around that community, the broader community. And, you know, I even brought up the rezoning of schools uh, that happened shortly after you know, we graduated high school. And even with like the building of newer school facilities, or now what they're even doing is relocating some schools. And, you know, in the, in the example I brought up in the previous segment about, you know, one of those schools here being built is being relocated. Uh, it's already in a decent community. The building's old, yes, but it's being relocated, I think, closer to the state border, actually, in which in that area is a wealthy community. Mm-hmm. So on the surface, it, it looks rather harmless, but when you really look at it, it looks very political. And, you know, you just say, why? And obviously, we, we know the reason why. And it, it, And it's not fair. No, it's really not fair. I've been in the city for well over 20 years. I have seen it change throughout my whole life. I remember being on the bus in middle school and seeing whole neighborhoods be torn down. I also remember being in middle school and a lot of students just not coming back and then finding out that it was because the projects that were right beside the school were torn down. A developer bought it and then they built up like condos. And all of those students lost access to a really great magnet program. Their families had to move. A lot of them walked to school because they were close and also because they didn't have any other form of transportation. And it really, when these families are like forced to leave whatever they have and whatever they've worked for it's it's really it's upsetting to see that it's not like they really had a choice it was definitely something that was forced on them you know when you get an eviction letter because your building is being torn down that's it there's nothing much you can do it's truly a bummer and where are these people going and you know it's so funny because even they talk about how well in some cities it's happening all over. One of the things I kind of go back to real estate is, you know, people, people want to move to the suburbs. Now people are tired of the suburbs are getting tired of the suburbs and they want to come back to the city. Yes. And they want to be close. They want to, and, and still have the highway access and be able to walk to the, to the local market or wherever, you know, the local shops and do what they do. So now I, I, I think about it too, it's like, it's almost like being flipped. Okay, cool. We're going to come in, we're going to take this and then we're going to take everybody that's been here and we're going to send them back. We're going to send them where we were, but we're taking all that with us while we're at it. Yes. We're and a lot of, go ahead. Yes. I feel like a lot of times working class people that live within a city, they live within a city because it's easier to access your job and it's easier to survive when you can work like two or three jobs if they're all kind of close together, you know, but when you're, like you said, where are they going? You know, when you're driven out of the city, 
sometimes these families have to go a county over where they can afford it because now the whole city is getting really expensive and they can't find rent that's affordable for them or they can't find homeowners that are willing to work with them or real estate agents that are willing to work with them. You know, not everyone has the ability and the privilege of having money saved up to put a down payment on a home on a home or not everyone knows what grants are out there for help, you know, when it comes to like home buying or even how the housing market works or how you have to get pre-approved to even, you know, start looking at all those kind of things. You know, there's there's just so much that goes into it. Like we can see a building be there and then be torn down and another one come right come right back up. But there were people with lives that were in there, you know? Right. So let me ask you this question. How has segregation changed? Like if, 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 to make this clear for the listeners, more black and white, black and white. <laughs> how has it changed from the 1960s and before to now? So I feel as if if we're looking at segregation under like Jim Crow to now, I would say that it hasn't really gone anywhere. I feel like it's just evolved with the use of gentrification. I feel like one of the very good, like a really good example is the city of Charlotte. When the light rail went up, Everyone was so excited. The light rail, this is amazing. This is like progress, you know, access to transportation, all these kind of things. It's been a couple of years now and everything that I've seen, I have, a, I have this ongoing joke with my, with my friends and I'm saying, and you know, every time a business just disappears from alongside the light rail, I'm like, oh, everything the light rail touches, the light rail destroys. And we joke mm. about it, but I have been to businesses where I'm just like, like what is happening? You know, like your workers are leaving or, you know, also like your prices are going up so high and they're like, we just can't afford the rent anymore. Because of the light rail, we can't afford the rent. We can't afford to stay here. I've seen whole communities just change. And yes, a lot of times these changes come under the guise of like progress and something that's accessible to like everyone. But there's never really much focus on what we ha- you know what happens a couple of years from now. How does this affect communities a couple of years from now? And I continue to see it. I genuinely continue to see segregation working very hard, still surviving very much so through gentrification. I feel mm. like it's there. You know where you are by just you can drive down a road and you can just see it almost like. You can start to see where people have owned their homes and have been there for like maybe 20 plus years. And then you can start to see the people that have just moved in, you know, and the difference and just how the homes, not only how the homes look, but also that new gas stations are popping up. And all of a sudden there's a, there's a grocery store where they, there wasn't before. And all of a sudden there's medical centers around now. And you see these communities start to get the services, the access to services that they should have always had, but they're only now getting due to a different population moving in, families of higher income, individuals with higher income moving in. And due to these individuals moving in, you see a complete change in almost like urban design of the way that these communities are laid out. Yeah, you're just, you're making me think on, on actually on uh, the corner of Bayes Board and LaSalle, there's, they're adding a Chase Bank. 
Yes. Whoa, oh, Chase. Things. <laughs> Not Bank of America, Chase. <laughs> That's a different clientele. <laughs> yes, it is. A whole branch. Not an ATM, not a drive-through. <laughs> so when I saw that, I said, "Wow, that is that says a lot." So and, and obviously, go ahead. It hurts. I, I'm I'm not gonna lie. It hurts. I've lived on like honestly all sides of this city. I've lived on all sides of this city from the '90s until now, the early '90s until now, and I've seen. I've seen it change. Like when I go back to old neighborhoods, I don't recognize them. And I remember like I used to live like close to like the south side, the southeast side, no, southwest side. We used to have to go far to go to see a doctor. Now there's like doctor offices everywhere. There's like dentists. There's, you know, much better grocery stores with healthier options. There's more gas stations. There's just like more options. And you you sit there sometimes and you wonder, well, how come how come we didn't have that before? Like we had to move. Like we had to move because we didn't have what we needed in this area. We were forced to move, and moving is very expensive. And now you see, you know, like the money just flows through all of a sudden. And it's like, okay, so are you telling me that the city is only okay with spending this kind of money and rezoning and doing all these things if only a specific type of community lives there or if there's like an a, a you know like an income the community is meeting or what because I'm a firm believer in that everyone should have access to that within their community and if it's walkable even better and no one should have to leave where they live to be able to access anything that they need I agree All right, now for our final topic, restorative justice. So, you know, I looked at your research and I looked at your studies and everything and the results, and I found I find this approach to be very useful. And I think those that get it right have done this in some form of way. And after reading through the documents and again, the research, I found the results to be very powerful. And You'd, I would like for you to give the listeners a more insight into re restorative justice. What does it mean? How does it work? And so forth. Yeah, so I feel like before I even go into that, I do want to say that for the one thing that ties all of this together with restorative justice practices and all of that is that there, there has to be a clear statement that Discipline in schools tends to mirror the criminal justice system, where what we do is we exclude students. So if they, quote unquote, act up or if they were disrespectful or if they continue to be late or if they're not turning in their work or they, you know, anything that may be considered an unwanted behavior, what we do is we exclude them. We either kick them out by suspending them, expelling them putting them in in-school suspension, or we call a resource officer, you know, a school resource officer to come get, come, come get them. And I feel like that's something that we do in our society as well. Whenever there's any unwanted behavior, instead of there being any type of rehabilitation or community learning, people end up in jail or they end up in prison or they're caught up in the criminal justice system. And it's very hard to get out once you're in. And I feel like it's very similar for students 
And that's why I'm very into this research. So restorative justice practices is a different approach to, to put it simply, unwanted behaviors or difficult behaviors when we're talking about in the educational realm. Instead of using punitive or exclusionary measures when addressing students, you instead you see them, first of all, you, you, you choose to see them as not only an individual, but as someone who exists within a community. And that that person is worthy of redeeming themselves and of learning from their mistakes. Because I feel like as, a, as an adult, if I were to make a mistake at work and if someone were to talk to me in a punitive way or were to exclude me from anything due to me making a mistake, I would honestly be upset. That would probably be something I take up with HR. But students don't have that. Students don't have that kind of power. They're not able to really um, speak up for themselves when they make mistakes because then they're seen as like, you know, they keep messing up, you know, they keep doing wrong. So like, let's just say, for example, I think I personally learn best through example. So let's say that a student breaks a rule. It happens. Children forget. We learn through our mistakes. A punitive way of approaching it would be, you know, either talking down to them or excluding them from the classroom. The a more restorative way of approaching it would be talking about it within the classroom, making sure that if anyone was harmed through that action or through that misbehavior, that their needs are addressed and that as a whole, as you know, the teacher and the rest of the students, they talk with that one student who had the misbehavior and they tell them, you know, like, this wasn't okay because of X, Y, and Z. And I think next time, instead of doing that, you can either ask for help or reach out or let me know what you need. Or if it could be usually most of the time when there is misbehavior is because a need isn't met. So just making sure that the student's needs are met so that you just avoid having any kind of misbehavior in the classroom. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. It does. What were your thoughts on, on the on the study that you did, in the in, based on the results? Yeah, so I decided since I teach within preschool, I decided to look into what discipline is looking like in the U.S. with preschools, and what I'm seeing is that there's a really high, very high percentage of black students being expelled and suspended from preschool, and so you start to think. What could a four or five-year-old possibly do to end up suspended or expelled from preschool? And sadly, a lot of times it's student kept talking back or student wasn't able to stay on task or, you know, it's things that you would, you know, you wouldn't fire someone because they make a mistake. Instead, you would maybe provide them training or help them, but that's not the approach that preschools are using or preschool teachers because quite honestly they don't prepare you for that most schools don't prepare you for that when you're getting your degree and so I I personally don't like that I honestly like to treat my students that I work with the same way I like to be treated I know that sounds like super cliche and like everyone says treat people the way you want to be treated but I I think that should extend to people that are younger than us as well 
you know, students from pre-K to 12th grade. Oh, and um, yeah, and and you know why also, I think it's very important because they learn that they themselves are valuable as people, as individuals, and as a member of a community, which I personally think only supports them in the future. It really, it really only helps them be better individuals if they're genuinely treated with respect and, you know, they're genuinely listened to. So there, I kept seeing tons of screaming and yelling and children being sent into my classroom and things like that throughout these past five years that I've been teaching. And I'm, I think, okay, no, like clearly something is not working. So I started looking more into restorative justice practices and I started looking into ways that I could implement them in the classroom. And I'm like, okay, you know, this is something that can genuinely be changed. Like this, I don't think it's too difficult. I think that the one thing that it takes is for a teacher to be willing to evaluate themselves. And I feel like that's, we don't do a lot of that. I'll be honest. Educators, sometimes they don't do a lot of self-evaluation. Most of them don't. The really good ones, they definitely do, but most of them don't. And sometimes you have to check the hierarchies in the classroom. You have to check the way you're speaking to these students. You have to check the relationship you have with them, whether or not you're genuinely creating an inviting environment in your classroom. And so I decided to try and implement restorative justice practices within some classrooms, preschool classrooms specifically. So what I did was I gave like a quick training and I provided a worksheet where like on the left side, it gave examples of like punitive examples of discipline. And on the right side, it provided restorative ways of dealing with situations. And so I allowed the teachers to pick a different restorative practice to implement and to make a, make a checklist. You know, every time they were using it, make sure they, they, um, they checked it off. And I came up with, with the study on my own. And I also came up with the uh, data collection on my own. And I wasn't sure, I wasn't sure if I should have added the comment section or not, but I went with it anyway. And I think that was like the best thing I could have done because the teachers were truly able to give me their feedback. And I felt like it was very raw and it was very honest. They, you could see just in their, in the language that they were using, like the first day that they were collecting data on using these practices, on using restorative justice practices, they were very focused on the misbehavior and the child. And the way that they that they explain themselves, you know, like check, they used discipline. Johnny was pulling hair and screaming in the classroom. And by the last week, the last day that they were collecting data, you saw a complete shift. It was instead of the focus being on what the student had done wrong or what they thought the student had done wrong, they started to see that it was more about community. It was more about the environment. They would talk to the students. Like, for example, they were, one of the examples that the the teacher gave me was, student was reminded to not touch other friends' artwork, was asked if they felt it was fair to mess up someone's masterpiece. The children talked it out and apologized. And so you saw a shift from student did wrong to this is what the student was reminded to not do. This is how everyone worked on it together. And this is what was done to make sure that the harm was fixed. And that was just in three weeks. 
which absolutely amazed me. I did not think I was going to see that at all. Well, that is, again, that's really awesome. And the fact that you took and put all that together, <laughs> I thought you may have worked off of some kind of template, you know, made it your own. But the fact that you put all that together um, is really solid. So, you know, again, kudos to you for that. Thank you. Yeah, no, it was amazing just to see how it went from like a blame approach towards a relationship-based approach. And it, it was, I feel like it completely changed. And the one thing that I did that I genuinely think was the best thing I could have done was that I decided to conduct student interviews. And in the interviews, I wanted to test the relationship that students had with their teachers. I wanted them to be honest with me about how they felt when they went to school, how they felt about being in the class, and how they felt when, if they ever messed up or if anyone in the class ever messed up, and how they felt if they were ever excluded or talked to in a punitive way. The results were astounding. All of the students firmly, firmly would say, I do not like being yelled at. I don't like being yelled at. One of the students responded by saying that if she was in the position of the teacher, she said, oh, no, I, I asked her, you know, how do you feel when, when your teacher, you know, yells at you if you ever make a mistake? She said, sad. I don't like when people yell at me. If I was a grown people, I would never shout at kids. So these are four-year-olds able to easily put themselves in the position of the educator and say, even if I was like older, even if I was your age, I wouldn't do that. I do, wouldn't do what you're doing right now. They were very vocal about the type of discipline that they liked and they didn't. Yeah, that's really powerful. That's really powerful. And I mean, we can learn a lot from kids at the end of the day. I mean, I, I don't know why people like to overlook that, but, <laughs> but that was awesome. You know, I really enjoyed the conversation that we got to have today. Again, I'm glad we were able to make this happen. Thank you for doing your research, one, and doing the, doing the project that you did. Um, and thank you for being willing to come on Sane Show and talk about it. So I really appreciate it and really enjoyed it. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me on and for taking interest in this. I love Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love stuff like this. This is the kind of stuff that needs to be talked about more, more often than not. So yeah, thank you. Thank you listeners for continuing to listen, continuing to like, share, subscribe, and spread the word about Sane Show. And remember, you guys are listening to Sane Show, the show about nothing and everything. And until next time, we're out.